Empathy is knowing our own dark words all has power. Like without that connection, you don't have anything. What's the opposite of addiction? This freedom. All right, team, fans of Finding Peaks, welcome back to another <laughs> special episode uh, with a special guest today. Part two of this journey. As you'll notice, I'm wearing the same clothes because I was asked by the production crew to keep it simple, <laughs> keep it straight, come back, look the same, so it doesn't look like you did this on the same day, which we would never do here at Finding Peaks Ever. Uh, in that regard. Time is of the essence. Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, joined today. Apparently, we're co-hosting Jason yeah, Friesma, LPCLAC, Chief Clinical Officer. We are also joined by... Chief Operating Officer Clint Nicholson, LPCLIC, Chief of All Things, all as we learned in the last episode. <laughs> and again, our special guest, Dr. Stephen Alardi, clinical psychologist, researcher, professor, University of Kansas, also author of The Depression Cure, joining us again here to do another deep dive into the book, and welcome back. Uh, yeah. You know what, I'm so excited, except for the part that I'm just now realizing, I'm wearing the same exact <laughs> mm, clothes, yeah. and yeah. now everybody's you. gonna be like, oh, yeah. that dude has like one outfit. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it is actually the same. Yeah. Or traveling, <laughs> yeah. it's understandable. Or traveling, yeah. yeah. You're traveling, you're traveling light. It's, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's, it's the it's humble fine. Midwesterner in you. It is the, <laughs> good reframe. Right. Yeah, I, thank yeah. you, yeah, I, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> yeah, always a pleasure. Um, haven't seen you in four years. The viewers might not know this, but that was our initial time together in uh, Washington where we, where we originally met. But without going down that rabbit hole, of how we became good friends in the process. <laughs> uh, uh, I feel like there should be some special music for this little montage. Yeah. It'll be a little yeah. montage. Yeah. Clinton and I can leave yeah, if you'd like. Yeah. like. We can step out. Yeah, we'll, the light. Light. <laughs> we'll ignite the candle. There, we'll get yeah, it going. That's Absolutely. what I'm talking about right yeah. now. Yeah. Ritualistic, important aspect mm. of the depression cure, I think. Anyways, on the last episode, we didn't get an opportunity to explore. We're calling it the shtick. Mm. The, the thing that's important, the, the, the narrative for why the TLC model makes sense, the thing that we can um, gravitate towards and appreciate about why we're exploring these things in the first place. And so um, without giving the whole introduction of your book away, because we want the readers out there, Amazon.com, uh, order the book, local library, all those things, find it, read it, it's excellent. But without giving it all away, what is the shtick? Yeah, what is the narrative so, here that, for the setup? Well, so there really is a, a story behind mm -hmm. it. So I, I've been a clinical researcher for 32 years now. And about 15 years ago, I was getting so frustrated with the fact that, yeah, we know a lot about clinical depression. But we've barely moved the needle in terms of patient outcomes. This was 15 years ago. I was like, okay, you know, we've got a whole armamentarium of medications and psychotherapies and evidence-based practice and all the things, more things actually now than we had then, but um, we weren't getting great outcomes. And particularly what was vexing for me is the societal burden of depressive illness was growing. So depressive illness went from 30 years ago, it was like, the seventh cause of work-related disability in the US. Now it's number one. It is the single leading cause of work-related disability. It's a major cause of death through depression-related suicide. It's a major cause of um, relationship dissolving, um, 
unemployment. It's, I mean, it, it's, it's exacting this huge toll. And I stumbled on the work of an anthropologist, so somebody in a completely different field, this anthropologist named Edward Schieffelin, who was studying Aboriginal groups. And he spent 10 years with a group in uh, uh, the highlands of Papua New Guinea. They're called the Kaluli people. And one of his questions was, okay, well, how, like, when the Kaluli get sick, what does that look like? And how does it compare to when we get sick? And then he was like, what about mental illness? So he got himself a DSM, for viewers who may not know, that's like our diagnostic psychiatric Bible, our Bible of diagnosis. Takes a DSM, 2,000 members of the extended Kaluli people, and he's like, okay, well, like, what kinds of mental illness do they get? And one of his findings, when I saw it, it smacked me in the face. It was like somebody like splashed cold water on me. And it was like, oh, out of 2,000 members of the Kaluli people, he's found one case of marginal depression. I'm like, wait, that's like 1% of what we have. And their lives are arguably harder than ours. They don't have any modern medicine. They don't have any of our technology. They, they have a high rate of infant mortality. They have a high rate of parasitic infection. Like all kinds of really tough things, and yet they don't get clinically depressed. What the hell's going on? And then I started thinking, wait a minute. Depression is following a pattern that we see with other diseases called diseases of civilization, where these diseases are really, really endemic and pre highly prevalent in the West, not very prevalent among Aboriginal groups. Like what? Like atherosclerosis, heart disease, like many forms of cancer. Like, oh, here's one, hemorrhoids. Did you know Aboriginal groups do not get hemorrhoids? Why? Because they don't spend their day sitting down. They're active, they're up, they're moving. Tooth decay. I mean, they have it, but not the way we do. Why? Because they're eating not processed foods, right? They're eating whole foods. It's like, oh, depression fits that pattern. Wait a minute. That sparks another association. The human species lived primarily, we, our ancestors, until 10,000 years ago, everybody lived as hunter-gatherers. So all of our ancestors spent their entire lives in this group of 30, 50 people on a lifelong camping trip with their closest friends and relatives. And that's the way the Kaluli are living today. So, oh, okay. So our ancestors didn't get depressed very often, probably, just like the Kaluli don't. Why? Because presumably they had all kinds of protective things woven into the fabric of their day-to-day -day lives. Likewise, they probably did not have to fend with lots of the things in our lives that are toxic. So even though we love, in many, I think we do, love lots of the things that we um, take advantage of in 21st century American life. I mean, I love my laptop. I love mocha lattes. I, love, I mean, there are all <laughs> kinds of things that, like, I am not, I'm not a Luddite. I don't want to get rid of technology. I, I love technology. But many of the things, like social media, which we'll talk about later, many of the things that we experience day to day, traffic and, you know, fast food, and I mean, I could go on, are psychologically toxic. So here's the, the sound. I'm finally now at a moment of sound bite. Here we go. Everybody brace yourselves. <laughs> um, our ancestors were protected by several things that were woven into the fabric of their day-to-day -day lives, and we can reclaim them, bring them into the present, and have the best of both possible worlds. Have the best of modernity, 
jettison the to toxic things that are present in modernity and embrace or reconnect with the healing habits of the past. It may sound like a tall order, but I don't think we have any choice because mm -hmm. the societal burden of depressive illness now, it's one out of three Americans are going to be cut down by this massively disabling, painful illness at some point. And that rate of depression is going up with every generation. So Gen Z, kids that are college age or, or below, they're already at like 20, 25%. Their lifetime burden, if we don't do something to turn this around, is probably gonna be 50%. And um, so that was the genesis of this idea of, oh, what are the things that the Kaluli are doing that are protecting them? What are the things that our ancestors benefited from? By the way, quick side point of the shtick. You ready for this? <laughs> Here's the shtick. If our hunter-gatherer ancestors were as depression-prone as we are, if they were as vulnerable as we are, given how much harder their lives, objectively harder their lives, we, we would have been obliterated as a species yeah. tens of thousands of years ago. We never would have made it. We never would have lasted this long. So we know, given how debilitating depressive illness is, we know that our ancestors had to be way less vulnerable than we are. Why? Why do we not have genetic protection? There should have been massive selection pressure to give us antidepressant circuitry to mimic the antidepressant effect of all of our best meds and other best practices. Why don't we have it? We didn't need it. Why? Because the antidepressant was woven into the fabric of our lifestyle. Just like, by the way, interesting, maybe, maybe interesting side note. Did you know that primates that subsist on fruit, I, you, and you're going, this is really random, Steve. I hope you've got a pointer. There are primates, <laughs> relatives of ours, who only live on fruit. They're called frugivores. The genetic machinery that they would normally use to make vitamin C, did you know that most primates have genetic machinery that their bodies can make their own vitamin C? Awesome. But when they became frugivores, now they were getting so much vitamin C in their lifestyle that there was genetic drift. And all the, the genetic machinery to make vitamin C was allowed to basically drift and turn off. There are all these mutations that accrued and it doesn't work anymore, but it's still there. It's a genetic fossil. Mm. It's in our DNA right now. Every one of us sitting around the circle have basically vestigial vitamin C machinery in our DNA. It doesn't work anymore. Even though our ancestors long since went away from being frugivores, they don't have the genetic machinery anymore. So now we have to get the vitamin C from our diet, right? It's kind of like that with us with depression. Our ancestors had, they were like frugivores. They had all the protection, everything built in. And now our environment has radically changed. Why? Because technology, because we learned to become agrarians. And then finally we had the industrial revolution. And the life that our kids lead today would have been unrecognizable to our ancestors. They would look at it and they would be like, this might as well be on Mars. It's so different. So what do you take as the most taxing feature in the, in the change, right? Mm -hmm. I, 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 you've talked, at least in, in, while I'm present with you, you've talked a lot about uh, the fight or flight response yeah. as the most taxing feature. And we have it in the tribal cultures, certainly. They're, they have it. We Absolutely. all have it as a genetic code set, right? <coughs> and then we are living in, in the industrial world. 
And what is the, what is the tension there? What's creating the most? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so it, I mean, it turns out, we talked about this a little bit earlier, that the single most important driver in terms of the neuroscience of depression is not a deficit of serotonin. The single most important driver is the brain's runaway fight or flight stress response that just will not shut down. And then all these downstream reactions because when the brain is in runaway stress response mode for weeks, anyone who has any genetic vulnerability or any other acquired vulnerability, their brain shuts down and it's just like, okay, dude, you are sick like literally physically ill, like fighting the flu, fighting COVID, you shut down, you wanna crawl into a cave. And so our ancestors, and if we look at modern day Aboriginal groups, if we look at modern day hunter gatherers, when they go into fight or flight mode, it's for a few minutes, it's for an hour. It's, oh, I have to escape that predator. Oh, I have to uh, uh, get down below tree line while there's a lightning storm. Oh, I have to run back to safety. There's this other hostile group over there. They sent a scout out. I need to scurry back to my, my people, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So in other words, our fight or flight reaction is designed to get us moving vigorously in the face of physical threat. In the ancestral world, that was very short-lived. In the modern world, we have that fight or flight reaction going off all the time. We're sitting in traffic and it's going off. Well, we're not physically endangered, hopefully yeah. most of the time, but our brain <laughs> thinks we are. Right. And so we're all revved up. Um, we go Why on does social... our brain think we are? What, what's started to activate it? What keeps oh. us so activated? Because symbolically, we're, our, our, our apish brain <laughs> is not, it's, this is unprecedented for an ape to be traveling in the steel can going down the road at 70 miles an hour <laughs> with all these other steel cans and all these other people okay. and, and, and people are being mean to us and they're like cutting us off and they're flipping us the bird. And I mean, not that they would ever do that in Colorado, but you know, <laughs> in Kansas they might. Um, and and our, our, our brain is trying to make sense of this and it's like, this seems stressful, this seems threatening. This is sure. like, bad things could happen here. This is unprecedented. It looks dangerous. It feels dangerous. And especially the, oh, no, it's now it's congested. Oh, I'm running late. Oh, I'm going to miss my thing. Oh, I'm going to, you know. Uh, and by the way, we, you know, we're constantly plugged in to a news medium that's, that's telling us constantly, your world is dangerous. You know, bad is stronger than good. And, 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 and news purveyors know that if they want to grab our attention with the news, if it bleeds, it leads, right? If it's, if it's bad, well, guess what? In a global village of, of 8 billion people, there's always something horrible happening. There's always something scary. There's always something outrageous, always something dangerous. So we're bombarded with all the outrage. We go on social media and it amplifies it. And pretty soon you have a group of people walking around constantly in fight or flight mode for a million and one reasons. And all of the natural braking systems, the things that would put the brakes on that in the ancestral environment, they're missing. So it's like we have, if I can use another car analogy, it's like we have many things in the modern world pressing the accelerator of our fight or flight system and the brake lines have been cut. And our ancestors had lots of woven in braking systems, like what? Like time immersed in nature like time immersed in the tribe where you're just surrounded by the people who care about you, like physical activity, which is profoundly, it's like, um, okay, 
You know how a thermostat, like when you, when you turn up the heat in uh, the thermostat in your house, it's getting cold, and it's checking constantly for the feedback, like, oh, did this work, did this work, did this work, and then when it's finally hot enough, the thing shuts off? Mm -hmm. That's our fight or flight response system. What's it designed to do? What's the thermostat? It's get moving, get moving, get moving, get moving. What's the feedback it needs to shut off? Oh yeah, you've been moving. Mm -hmm. You've been really, really, really active. Why does exercise turn off or turn down our stress response circuits? In part because it's the negative feedback, the, 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 the sort of corrective mm -hmm. sample experience that says, okay, yeah, mission accomplished. You can calm down now. Um, so many of the protective things that our ancestors benefited from, they're just not there anymore. So we're living the sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, frenzied, media-addicted, sleep-deprived, fast-food-laden life, and we're just bombarded with things that are psychologically toxic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the, that resonates with me so much because I'm trying in my personal life to not tone it down to get rid of it because social media is such a great part of our world, podcasts and otherwise, but I find myself feeling outraged at so many things. It could be the slightest of sentence, you know, that, that ticks me off and that's the part that I don't enjoy about it and I want to experience it in a more positive way, but uh, in tracking that outrage, I find myself not present, distracted, out in the future, angry at something, angry at a party, a political thing, yeah. an environmental thing, you know, whatever's going on. And an hour later, you know, when we find ourselves consumed by it, and I'm sure it happens to a lot of the viewers out there on social media, you're just stricken through it and you're pissed off at the end of it and you feel stuck in something and fog-headedness and all this sort of stuff, you know, sort of follows at the end of it. Um, and I think it's worth talking about, worth having a discussion about, because when we talk about our you know, poor little eight brains, we, we can't, it, it feels as a real natural experience that this is something that is very disruptive for us. Yeah, and, and, and so there's something that goes with it that I know you wanted to talk about today, which is this really, really toxic habit that a lot of us probably can resonate with, that you know, technically we call it rumination, dwelling, brooding, just rehashing over and over again negative thoughts. They could be worry thoughts, things that, you know, that we fear that might happen in the future. Usually anxiety rumination is future oriented, like things, threats that are looming, and depressive rumination is stuff in, in the rearview mirror that we regret or that we're grieving because it feels like a loss or a setback or an embarrassment or, you know, something painful, a failure. And when do people ruminate? We know that rumination is super toxic. We know that rumination will rev up those stress circuits. So another thing, back to your question of what keeps them revved up, we ruminate all the time. When we study um, aboriginal groups, they don't tend to ruminate. Why not? Well, in part because they have very little alone time. And the single biggest risk factor for rumination is when we're alone. Doesn't mean that being alone is always toxic. Being alone can be a great, a beautiful opportunity to meditate or to do something that we really love and enjoy. But for a lot of us, especially when we're depleted, when we're psychologically not at our best, when we're alone, we dwell and we brood, either about things that threats on the horizon, pain in the past. And when people are clinically depressed, they spend hours ruminating. When do they do it? When they're alone or when they're disengaged. So they can ruminate when they're binge watching. 
Yeah. They think they're watching. They can uh, ruminate when they're surfing the net, when they're on their phone. They can ruminate when they've been on social media. They can ruminate when they are um, talking with somebody and they zone out. And a lot of my depressed patients, I'm sure your patients as well, yeah. have, have, you know, when we bring this up, they're like, oh, yeah, 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 I do that. Like, I, I can't stay locked in because as soon as we start talking, I just, I'm off to the races. Occasionally, people will ruminate together out loud, co-ruminate, and that's also toxic. Is there a way to, like, narrowly define rumination? Yeah, it's for just, so the word rumination comes from, it's a, it's, it's a farming word, believe it or not. Cows are ruminant animals. Rumination refers to chewing the cud. They have a ruminant pouch. Why? Because um, they get a lot of their nutrition from grasses, which are very nutritious for them, but very hard to process. And so they, they, they eat it, and then it goes to the ruminant sack, and, and, and there it gets kind of pre-processed and made into this pellet that they then regurgitate and they, they, can't, they can't stomach it. So they got to chew on it. Well, that's a great metaphor for what happens when stuff happens to us that we can't stomach. We chew on it. And it's a natural adaptive reaction whenever something happens that's upsetting. It's natural to ruminate about it for a while. Why? Sure. Well, you know, we want to figure out what happened. Why did it happen? What can I do to fix it? And if I can't fix it, well, how can I make sure it doesn't happen again? Can I at least understand it? So, so I don't get It's like a learning mechanism. Yeah. It's natural. We want to validate for people. Like, yeah, rumination is totally yeah. fine until it's not. <laughs> so it's fine for how long? Until we stop extracting fresh nuggets of wisdom and learning. Sure. And, you know, and how long does that take? Eh, it depends on the thing. But usually half hour, hour. And I tell my patients, like, look, if you've been ruminating on this thing for days, you're probably way past the point of diminishing returns, right? So then, you know, it's like, well, how do we stop it? Lots of different techniques. But one of them is to say, hey, let's lean into it. They never see this coming. Let's lean into it. Every time you get the urge to ruminate, get out a pad of paper or get, you know, on your computer, set a timer and knock yourself out for 10 minutes. Ruminate as much as you can for 10 minutes. When the buzzer goes off, walk away. Hmm. You have total permission, and they're like, Wait, I only get 10 minutes. It's like, well, do you think in 10 minutes, if you really knock yourself out, that you can extract anything new that you could actually learn from this session? And they're like, yeah, probably within five or 10 minutes. Um, and there's something powerful about you write something down, and then you can just walk away. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. Did I define rumination? It's dwelling at length on something either that, that we fear in the future or that we regret in the past or that we're grieving in the past. Yeah. No, I think that was far better than I could have defined yeah, it. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Perfect sense. And I, and I know, uh, I can't remember the name of your speech and talks that you used to give in the past <clears throat> conferences, but uh, you know, the rumination, I want to get into the psychotherapy aspect of that and how we can approach that and maybe some quick interventions that can get us there faster while we're waiting for, you know, per the prior episode, for medications to ramp up in the background and so forth. But um, We've had a lot of experiences, I think in our industry in general as well too, the first thing we do is we take cell phones. I, I think the first initial take of that is liabilities, you know, ordering drugs onto a campus, yeah. you know, those sort of things. There's, there's good reasons for its absence. And then I think we started learning a lot more about it in the clinical setting and just hope though that you can fill us in kind of about your passion around that and what yeah. you're saying clinically. Well, a hundred years ago when Peaks was a new company uh, and when I started, it um, wasn't quite a hundred, but seven years ago, 
Uh, our program was six to nine months in length, and we would um, take people's phone at the beginning, um, and then it, when we decided to give it back, it was usually about four and a half months into a treatment episode, and so pretty much um, our clients would live in this contained environment with people they were spending months and months with um, while very disconnected from much of the outside world. In fact, sometimes I would start groups with uh, just kind of going over current events because they were so disconnected from the world. Like, hey, you may want to know that, like, you know, there was a tsunami or something, you know what I mean? But, like, um, there's that level of disconnection um, from, uh, from current events, but also just, like, from the scroll of Facebook or, or Twitter or... TikTok, uh, I'm not sure TikTok was around seven years ago, but um, there was so much of that. And then, um, I, I mean, I'll never forget when, we, when, when I went to give a, a client her phone back, uh, our first graduate of our women's program, and she's just like, I don't, I don't want that. Um, and I think, uh, and then we would watch our clients kind of go through a process of beginning to kind of put their guard up again and kind of beginning to escalate and just being increasingly anxious and activated, even in anticipation of getting their phone back. And then oftentimes the first thing they would do would be to delete their social media apps. Clinton, I know you'll love that. But like, yeah. I think um, it was a pretty fascinating process um, to watch and be a part of. And I know even some of those uh, graduates of Peaks have actually never gotten back on social media just because they were disconnected from it and felt such great relief uh, during that time. Um, and, it, and I do, it, it's just mindful for me, just thinking, considering this rumination concept, um, how much, it, it, sometimes our regret or rumination isn't even about big things. It's about some, some of the most mundane Absolutely. comparisons that we're drawing or whatever. It isn't, doesn't have to be, you know, the grieving of a parent. Like it can be just like, Somebody looks like they got a promotion that I didn't get at a job, oh, and I feel terrible yeah. about that. Yeah. I, I mean, some of my worst bouts of rumination, honestly, have been, oh, I was just in a faculty meeting, and one of my colleagues said something mean. <laughs> that hurt my feelings, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I might have responded in real time, or maybe not. You know, yeah. maybe I just am like, no, I'm going to just bite my tongue. But then I'm driving home and I'm sitting at the red light and I'm playing it over and I'm playing it over and I'm, the more I play it over, the more upset I'm getting. And it's, it'll take your breath away. Yeah. And, and I don't care how like, robust your mental health is, I don't care what kind of a place of well-being you're in, if you have one negative event and you start brooding about it, within five, 10 minutes, you're not in a good place. Yeah. And um, it, it's always an opportunity for me to, to put into practice what I preach, right? Mm -hmm. To be like, all right, you know, like you got to walk the walk, right? Yeah. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What do you do with the red light then? So this particular example that I'm thinking of, somebody really, really pushed my buttons mm -hmm. at a meeting and I did bite my tongue very wisely because I was going to say something that was not going to be helpful. <laughs> And I'm sitting at the red light. Uh, well, I'm, by the way, I'm brooding all the way the walk down to, you know, I have about a 10-minute walk to my car and then the drive to that point. So it's been like a 20, 25-minute bout of rumination. So I'm good and worked up. And I'm sitting at the red light, and I'm like, and I had just led a, a therapeutic lifestyle group the week before we were talking about rumination. One of the techniques that we had asked patients to see if they could put into practice when they're ruminating that week was... 
gratitude. I knew you were going to say it. In the moment. Yeah. In the moment. Um, and this ideally would be something, if you're keeping a gratitude journal, if you're doing a gratitude practice where every day, ideally three like little things. Like you were talking about, we don't ruminate necessarily about the big things. Gratitude is, I think, best practiced with the little things. I mean, obviously the big things we're grateful for as well, but um, so I'm sitting at the red light and I'm like, okay, gratitude, gratitude. And this is so amazing. The, 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 um, I think we often fail to appreciate just how much our memory access is guided by our mood state. If you are in an angry mood, most of the easiest memories to pull up are gonna be other times you were angry. I kid you not. Especially other times you were angry at that same person. If you're in a anxious, fearful mood state, your memories are way easier if they're other worry-related sort of Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sitting there and I'm angry and I'm, I'm like, I got nothing. And I'm embarrassed, I, there's nobody around and I'm just embarrassed. I'm like, I cannot believe I'm freaking, you know, teaching, preaching this and I'm, I got nothing. And I'm like, Steve, you have so much to be grateful for. I'm having a talk with myself. And, and the answer is, yeah, but I can't think of anything right now. And, and, I, and I'm like, this is, I will never forget this moment because I'm getting way deeper insight into what my patients are telling me because they're like, you know what? In the moment, this is hard. It sounds really reasonable and easy, yeah. but in the moment, it's hard. Stay with it. What do I tell my patients? Stay with it. Stay with it. It'll come. Stay with it. What, what about earlier today? Was, and, and in a flash, puppy, puppy jumped in my lap while I was having my coffee this morning. Puppy licked my face. Puppy cuddled with me and I, then I just melted and the dam broke and now I could think of a million things I was grateful for. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense mm -hmm. at all, but, yeah. mm -hmm. but it, it, um, once I was able to connect with anything I was grateful for, the anger melted, the rumination spell was broken and I was able to just enjoy the rest of my drive, come home in a much better space to greet my wife, to greet my puppy, to, you know. Is your dog's name Puppy? <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> His name is Teddy the Wonder Dog. Even better. Yeah, yeah. 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 Even better. that's a fair question though. Yeah. 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 So, so we this, called him Puppy. Yeah. yeah. This, this has me, uh, you know, Brene Brown's Dare to Lead book is coming up for me in this regard because, uh, and the, the viewers are just going to have to excuse my language because it's in the book, SFDs, Shitty First Drafts, as she describes it in her book, that we have... She actually gets that from the writer Anne Lamott. Okay. Mm. Anne Lamott and her oh. extraordinary treatise for beginning writers or aspiring writers called Bird by Bird. Yeah. And she has an entire chapter called Shitty First Drafts. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Were we talking about her on our walk yesterday? No. Okay. <laughs> that name sounds familiar. But, but, but in that regard, she talks about the experience of the shitty first draft is the buildup. Uh, the reason we do it, one, we, we wanna, we're curious. We want to figure out what took place, what the problem was, what the solution is, those sort of things. But whether we arrive at a conclusion that's accurate or not, we, per the book at least, if I remember it correctly, we get a dopamine kick. And so there's an advantage to doing it. But for the depressed patient, the trade-off for that dopamine kick sounds uh, massively off, where we get stuck in a fight-or-flight phase. And so maybe, I guess the question here is, 
from your experiences and research and so forth, is that dopamine kick true for the depressed patient? As they're ruminating, do they get something, even if the trade-off oh, yeah, is yeah, significant? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, I, I, li I really like this question. So there's something incredibly addictive and seductive about rumination. It's tantalizing. It offers the promise, and I cannot tell you the number of patients that I've worked with that when they're just being very real and very honest, they're like, yeah, I, I know it sounds stupid, but I, I, every time I ruminate about this breakup, I, I think like, this time I'm gonna figure out why he left me, or this time I'm gonna figure out why he cheated on me, or this time I'm gonna figure out why everything went south, or this time I'm gonna figure out why, why that job didn't work out, or why I didn't get that offer I thought I was gonna get, or why I didn't get into that grad school, or, you know what I'm saying? It's like, mm -hmm. rationally, I know this makes no sense because the last 500 times I've ruminated about it, I got no further into it. But it feels like this time, it's, it's like Lucy in the football. You know, and Charlie Brown's like, no, this time she's gonna hold, this time I'm really gonna kick it. You know, and that's what rumination does. It holds out this promise of, yeah, this time it's really gonna connect and you're gonna figure it out. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so it has this seductive, alluring, addictive quality. It is dopaminergic, but then at this horrible cost, of ramping up our stress circuits, making us more depressed, more anxious, more angry, more disconnected. By the way, the opportunity cost, I know that's an economist term, right? But the, the, like, what are we giving up when we ruminate? You know what we're giving up? The world of other people and activity that we're designed for. We're not designed to be living in our heads, but when we ruminate, we're stuck in our heads. And most Americans spend way too much time lost in their head. We give up our here and now. We give up the moment. Yeah. We're sleepwalking. We're, yeah. you know, the Zen meisters throughout history have always said, be here, be now, you know, right now, be fully awake. Sure. But rumination is so deceptive, right? Because it, it's, it's almost uh, dressed up as a solution, right? It's, yeah. It's like it's a, it presents itself like, oh, I'm going to come to a solution. Yes. I'm actually, I'm coming to resolution at this yeah. point, but it's not. It's completely Usually. deceptive in that sense. And the reason it's, it's like a Trojan horse in a way, because right. it, it, yeah. it presents itself and it says, well, no, look, everybody ruminates. And, and, right. and by the way, rumination, not only is it normal and natural, but it's, it, it's helped you before. Yeah. Like, remember that one time when the thing didn't go well and you started thinking about it and you figured out why and then you made a course correction and it's like, bro, you should be ruminating more. Absolutely. Right, because yeah, this is the, the thing. best thing you could, yeah. 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 yeah, don't go to your friend's house. You need to stay here and figure this you out. You need to just stay yeah, here. Yeah. Don't go outside. Hunker down. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it... <sighs> well, it's that unpredictable reward that is actually the most rewarding, right? When people yes. receive that, but they, it's unpredictable when they'll receive it. That's the most oh, that I pushes that. the lever the most, right? That's a great... Yeah. Can I use that in my, yeah, my next version of the depression curve? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can. Uh, Jason Friesma, yeah. yeah uh, uh, remind You're... me, I, I got to give him the credit for that. Um, seriously, that's, that's phenomenal. Yeah. So, yeah, th there is this sense of, um, it's like the, did you guys ever study this in, in Psych 101, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, the pigeon on the variable yeah, ratio, the, variable, read, yeah. the slot machine. It's like, mm -hmm. as long as it's delivering the reward at some point, some point. we don't know when, yeah then you're gonna keep at it. Yeah. And yes, rumination, even for the addict, yeah. the ruminative, ruminative addict, it will still pay off sometimes. Yeah. So they're gonna stay at it. Right. Yeah, that's, that's so good. Yeah. 
Yeah. Genius. Mike Trout. Yeah. 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 Jason. Yeah. 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 You know, there are two general approaches that are taken. A lot of medication pushing for 60, you know, 76% of the population, major depression population, they go into a setting, they get the medication, they walk away. Not a great outcome generally. Usually they're primary care doc. Yeah. Primary. They're, they're doing all the heavy, much of the heavy lifting, not because they should, they know that, but because they're, they're standing in the breach. They're, they're, they're filling the gap because so many depressed patients are getting nothing. And they show up at their you know, primary care doctor's office and they're, they're hurting. And the doc is like, well, I don't have a lot of time or anything else, but like, hey, I got some Lexapro. Like, maybe that'll help. I got some effects or maybe, you know. So they're, they're getting minimal care, but the doc is thinking correctly, this is better than nothing. Yeah. You and know? maybe the public is sold in that moment as well, too, because they just saw the commercial, like, you're depressed? Yes, I am. Well, we have this pill. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I'm suffering. So, right. you know, and then it, uh, then you get into those settings, stress environments or otherwise with the family doc, and it matches, right? And it tells yeah. the story that this is going to provide that relief. Uh, but we know in, from the prior episode that that monotherapeutic approach just is not going to have the validity that we believe it's going to. So insert the next possible thing within a setting like Peaks is we can do psychotherapy. Well, if, if the medication is going to work, we need time for it to work at the same time. The person wants relief right now. So generally speaking, the next thing is you know, psychotherapy. But so much of it is group activity as well, too. But I'm not ready for that environment. So before we get into the psychotherapy and how we can get into anti-ruminating you know, features of this, what are some of those quick setups that maybe we can do as a yeah. treatment center or folks can be thinking about as home to really you know, push this forward in a, in a more meaningful way? So if somebody is suffering, which everyone with clinical depression is suffering. And, and by the way, depression for a lot of patients actually lights up not just their emotional pain circuits, but those are cross-wired with our physical pain circuits. So a lot of depressed patients will tell, if they're severely depressed, they'll be like, I can't even describe it, but I'm just hurting. And it's like, yeah, it's emotional, but like it sort of feels physical too. So they're in agony, they're in torment, and they want relief, and they deserve relief. And so what do we have in our toolkit that's like, well, if we just throw meds at it, that helps a lot of people, but the average patient's gonna take like three, four weeks before that's kicking in, sometimes up to six weeks. What do we have that's faster? The first thing is surprising. Bright light therapy, phototherapy, using a therapeutic light box or getting outside for a half hour, it typically, ideally, within the first hour of the day, for a half hour, that dose of light, the do light is measured in units called lux, 10,000 lux or greater. A bright sunny day like this in Colorado Springs, it's probably 100,000 lux out there. A brightly lit indoor space is maybe a, uh, 300, 400, like not nearly enough. We've got to be outside or use a therapeutic light box. Effects kick in five to seven days on average. It's fast. It's amazing. And we don't use it nearly enough. Why? It just doesn't feel it's as... It's not very sexy. It's yeah. not very sexy. I was going to yeah. say that. But okay. I just, yeah. I'm glad you did. It's yeah. not very sexy. It's like a light box, really, a clunky yeah. little... Or, you know, getting outside. And it's like, 
No, light is a drug. Light hits receptors in the retina that have a broadband connection to the center of the brain, and it's fast. Okay, so there's number one. We can start using a therapeutic light box. Mm -hmm. Number two, there is a nutrient called acetyl-L-carnitine that supercharges the mitochondria, the power plants inside our brain cells, and we get depleted when we're depressed. And as we age, we get really depleted. So older or middle-aged depressed individuals respond to acetyl-L-carnitine like an antidepressant drug. It can be purchased over the counter. It's a nutrient. It has minimal side effects. Most people have no side effects. It has therapeutic efficacy on par with antidepressant meds, typically, and it kicks in often within a week. So some listeners, viewers might be like, well, wait a minute, acetyl-L-carnitine, first of all, what's the dose? 2,000 milligrams is the best study dose, 2,000 milligrams a day, divided dose, 1,000 milligrams twice a day. Wait a minute, acetyl-L-carnitine, you can buy it over the counter. By the way, I'm not giving medical advice. Talk to your <laughs> healthcare provider. <laughs> but I can buy it over the counter. Uh, it's pretty cheap. It's fast. It has minimal side effects. It seems to be about as effective as antidepressant meds. Why the hell is this stuff not being widely used? There's no money to be made yeah. pushing acetyl-L-carnitine. I have no financial vested interest in it. I just want people to get better. And we can leverage that. We can mm -hmm. use that, right? It's, it's a really cool little hack. Mm -hmm. um, it's supercharging brain cells. Okay, number three, we talked a little bit about chronotherapy, which is a fancy term for basically we're going to do a couple things. The first thing we're going to do, this sounds nuts, but it works. If you keep somebody with depression, if you keep them up all night and into the next day, then <laughs> bizarrely, miraculously, their mood will brighten after 24 to 36 hours of sleep deprivation. We don't understand why. I know we talked about this mm -hmm. earlier, like what do we know? We have no idea. There's a theory that maybe by keeping somebody up for, for 36 hours, we're basically putting the brain into emergency break glass in case of emergency stimulant mode. It's like, oh, th this must be life-threatening because why the hell else would somebody stay up for 24, 36 hours? So it seems to recruit stimulant circuits, dopamine-based stimulant circuits in the brain that are bypassing all the depressive shutdown. And this sounds great. It works until it doesn't. When does it stop working? As soon as the person goes to bed. But what if we layer that antidepressant, fast, rapid-acting effect of sleep deprivation with shifting the person's body clock? So instead of keeping them up 24 hours, what if we keep them up 28 hours? So we're going to phase shift their body clock by four hours, lather, rinse, repeat, do that six times. So we're going to be phase shifting them, and we're going to hit them with therapeutic doses of light, which we already know is rapid acting. This triple whammy is called chronotherapy. There's a protocol that's been developed, and it's very fast acting. Hmm. And um, it's probably the fastest thing that, that, that I know of that's also very physically benign. It doesn't have yeah. lots of side effects. It's not dangerous. Unlike, say, ketamine, it doesn't have like abuse potential. It's like, no, we're just keeping you up, and we're shifting your body clock, and we're giving you some bright light. And it's extraordinary. Love it. So 
we have to go back to the clinical team tomorrow and say, <laughs> yeah. we're working 24-hour shifts yeah. now. Yeah. No biggie. Sleep. Sleep. You're going to feel really good <laughs> for a few hours till you fall asleep. Yeah. 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 And then when you wake up, everybody's experience. Have, have you guys yeah. experienced this, though, when you've been up too long, you start to get kind of punchy? Oh, yeah. And, you know, and yeah. you get kind of giddy. Never. And you yeah. kinda, you know? It's the only time that I'm actually enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Um, so do you want to circle back to the, the anti-ruminative thing? The psychotherapy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and that's going to be the that's going to be the heavy hitting part of this episode. And I, I you know, in, in repeating that, though, it sounds sort of drastic. I, I think I want to make the claim too that living in the suffering of major depressive disorder, when you're feeling that way, drastic measures can make sense. And so these are things not to be ignored, but to be explored. And, and um, be curious about these sort of opportunities because if these solutions are that swift, then why not, right, as an experience versus the denial of the effort of it. And I think that's common, at least my felt experience within this industry is like, uh, we don't have time for that or those sort of things. But now more than ever, because we have more antidepressant medications, but depression, anxiety, and so forth is higher than it's ever been, now more than ever it feels like we should be thinking about these things critically and whether we deploy them, we should at least be curious about how it might work and develop Absolutely. I, you know, there's one other thing we didn't mention in, in the other episode that I, I probably should give a shout out, although you may want to edit this out, so we'll, we'll see. <laughs> there are psychedelic agents that are non-addictive. They do not target the addictive reward dopamine-based pathways in the brain. So we're talking about psilocybin, um, we're, we're talking about MDMA, we're talking, although MDMA has a little bit of reward activity, yeah. but psilocybin, LSD, um, ayahuasca, oh, there, there are others. Yeah. There is increasing evidence that taken on their own, not particularly helpful, can be dangerous. Taken under the aegis, under the guidance of a skilled therapeutic guide, because the, the, the psychedelic effect lasts for several hours. Mm -hmm. Under the direction of a skilled therapeutic guide, the psychedelic has antidepressant potential that is very rapid. And so there's massive amounts of research uh, ongoing on this topic. I think there's been a lot of hype, but I think there's a there there. I think, I think within five to 10 years, this kind of treatment could possibly be quite mainstream. And even in an addiction center, once we're very clear to validate with patients, like this is not an addictive substance. Patients who do psilocybin, the active ingredient in mushrooms, do not become addicted to it. They, they don't crave it when they're done. They don't want to do it every day for the next 50 years, <laughs> typically. Um, I think there's some, some poten real potential there. Yeah. Again, because it's so fast. Yeah. We're in Colorado, so we can totally yeah, we can talk <laughs> about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. This is. Uh, in fact, we just garnered a whole new. I think Denver was the first. Oh. Right? Yeah. yeah, Denver yeah. with the psilocybin. Yeah, yeah. our views just went up by thousands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the thing I love about the, the idea, I, I, yeah. again, the proof is in the pudding. I'm like, show me. You know, I'm right. a researcher. But the thing I love about the idea of it is this is a drug that supercharges psychotherapy. This is not a replacement for therapy. Right. This is not a replacement for gaining insight and gaining better connections with the people that matter to you, gaining a greater sense of purpose in your life. This is a supercharged catalyst 
for getting to that place that we all want to be, for living our best life. And I'm like, hey, if this can actually deliver the goods, this could be a game changer. Yeah. And I think it's, I, I like though, that, I mean, the cure to depression is not to go use mushrooms. Like that's exactly. not. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. For sure. Exactly. That's, that's the yeah. opposite. And that's that, the, that's the yeah. take home message. Don't yeah. try this at home, boys and girls. Right. Um, yeah. but, but it's a tool, right? It's a tool, yeah. but it, it, like any tool, it has, it has great potential for good or not. Sure. Yeah. It can be harmful. Right. There are people that go on mushroom trips that get very disoriented, very dissociated. They get to a very scary place. They freak out. They have panic. And it's the, that's the start of their panic disorder. Right. Now they're freaking out and panicking a lot. That was the genesis of it. Um, so it's like we got we to gotta respect it. For sure. It's powerful. But in the hands of a skilled guide, I think maybe there's potential for some real breakthrough for some patients. Absolutely. It's not going to work for everyone. It's not going to be for everyone, right. but maybe for some. Yeah. And, and it's just one tool, right? Just like, one. I mean, you, you can't build a house with just a hammer. You yeah. can't. And um, you and I are both big advocates of let's do all the things. Yeah, right. Yeah. Let's, let's take down the web of depression with all kinds of pebbles Absolutely. and stones and rocks and hammers and you know, whatever. Um, but occasionally, we get lucky with somebody and it's like, you know, some people with winter onset depression, we can cure it with light only. Some patients who are like their rumination is just so centered around this one painful thing and we can cure the rumination, we can bring down the whole web. Just some patients, they start exercising and that's curative for them. It's not many, but it, I mean, it does happen. You know what I mean? So it's like, we, we don't want to invalidate like, some people, it's like we hit that one connective thread and the whole web comes down. But the thing that hits it will be, it's like 20 different possibilities. Most of us are going to require like multiple things. We've got to mm -hmm. do all the things to really bring it down. Yeah. And that's what Peaks is all about. Yeah. And especially for long-term remission. Of exactly. Symptoms, right. right. Too. And so, all right. So now we have these beautiful potential things like psilocybin that can really increase or speed this up. Uh, we have some sleep deprivation along with some other things that might be able to really speed this up. carnitine and, yeah. and bright light. And, and now we're in this moment where the individual, okay, I'm starting to experience some relief and then we're back to this ruminating sort of feature, right? And this is where I think psychotherapy comes in in a big way. I think cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the things that at least I've read a lot in my Googling of the world, but I'm a very poor Googler at times. So is that the only thing or no, you know, what else but, can we but deploy? CBT, no, that, I, I, that's a great insight. CBT, the core, think about what is the core of cognitive behavior therapy? It's I'm going to change my reaction to things by basically learning in real time to notice how I'm interpreting the flow of experience. What, how, what are my interpretations? What are my automatic thoughts? And then how can I challenge them? How can I gather evidence? How can I have a different interpretation? How can I see how I'm biased and maybe very negatively biased, right? So that's, that's the technology of CBT. It is anti-ruminative, for sure. Patients who get really good at that cognitive reframing, they utilize it when they're ruminating. And so it becomes functionally an anti-ruminative technology. But there are lots of other things that are anti-ruminative. I think for most patients, just learning to notice mindfully, to be very mindful, meta-attentionally aware. Like, what am I aware of right now? What am I paying attention to? Oh, I'm ruminating. Huh, I caught it in real time. Mm -hmm. Most patients who ruminate don't even notice 
It's like when you drive a very familiar route and you pull into the driveway and you're like, how the hell did I just, like, I don't even remember, were there stop signs? Were there other, did I, were there pedestrians? Did I hit anything? Did I'm I, glad you know? it's not just me. Right. <laughs> I do that in very unfamiliar routes. So. <laughs> well, your mileage may vary. Yeah. But, but most of us, like, when we, it's overlearned, you know, yeah. you tie your shoes and you're like, I don't know what the steps were. But when you're learning, you do it very, you know, mindfully, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of our life is lived on autopilot, unmindfully. We ruminate unmindfully on autopilot. When we, when we learn to slow it down and be mindful throughout the day, oh, God, I'm doing it again. I'm ruminating. So now I've caught it, and I'm going to decide to stop it. That's more than half the battle. But it's like, OK, now I'm going to stop it. What am I going to do? All it takes is something absorbing to redirect your attention to. It could be good absorbing or bad absorbing, right? It could be a behavioral addiction, right? It could be, oh, I'm going to play video games for the next eight hours. Well, that's anti-ruminative. Not particularly instructive, but it might be better than depressive <laughs> rumination, mm -hmm. right? It might be. If we're in a harm, harm reduction model, yeah. right? It's like, oh, OK, somebody's depressed because they're ruminating. Well, if they go play video games for an hour to break the bout of rumination, it's not great, but it's probably pretty benign, right? Oh, I'm going to binge watch. Netflix for two hours, eh, it's not great, but it's pretty benign. You with me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But then maybe you know, better anti-ruminative absorbing things like what? Well, shared activity with a friend, shared activity with a loved one, taking my dog for a walk, um, you know, something where I'm connecting and belonging, something where I feel purpose, something where I feel you know, like, like I'm part of the tribe. And then finally, I would say something generative. That's like apex level, I would say. For, I have to be in a good space for this. But like, oh, I'm going to go noodle around on the piano or the guitar and try to write a song. Like, I've had this, like, four ideas for, it's like, I got this song, but, like, there's no bridge. Like, I'll noodle on that for a while, you know? And that's really anti-ruminative for me. Mm -hmm. It's like, I get so caught up in it. Like, mm -hmm. But I have to be in a pretty good headspace for that, mm -hmm. right? Like, some anti-ruminative anti-ruminative activity is like break glass in case of emergency. Like, oh, I'm just going to go for the big gun. I'm going to go for the video game. I'm going to go for the, the binge watch, right? And some is more like, oh, if I'm in a better place, like I can enjoy my friend's company. If I'm in a better place, oh, I can um, just be alone in nature. And that's anti-ruminative. I can get absorbed and lost in nature. But if I'm not in a good space, I might ruminate while I'm mm -hmm. lost in nature. Mm -hmm. You see it? Yeah. So we've got to be nimble. We've got to be nuanced. But that's really fun clinical work. And I hope patients, uh, I hope prospective patients, their families, as they hear this, they can think about, oh, wait, there's like detective work, there's like trial and error, there's like, yeah, we're gonna fine tune. If we're gonna help break the rumination habit, the rumination addiction, as it were, we're gonna have to be doing personalized medicine. We're gonna have to be fine tuning what's gonna work for this individual at this point in their journey. Because early on in the journey, they're going to need lots of really, really, really high, high, high engagement stuff. And as they get further along, they'll be able to do higher level, you know, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, just get absorbed in nature. I'm going to do some mindful meditation. I'm going to, you know, just connect with my friend. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. I, you know, for me, it makes, especially I can think of an individual session with a patient like that and being able to roll through these things in real time, one-on-one, -on -one, let's think about this, or you're dissociating, or you're ruminating, you know, we can capture things. The 
The challenge of our industry is that to provide this acute level of care and promise is that the downward pressure from the insurance lens is to do this for four to six hours in a group setting, depending on the level of care, and which doesn't seem like a great tee up for a depressed patient. Also, it seems like an environment where rumination can just go wildly out of control because once it's done, once we're done talking about the topic in relationship to me, it feels like I can be wildly distracted within the room. And so, there's a way to manage that, though. Okay. I, so, so I've where done. Where I'm going? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I've done depression groups. Okay. With typically eight depressed, often severely depressed patients, that all have this rumination habit, and we're now like having a session where we're going to focus on rumination. So the first session, it's a lot of psychoeducation. It's a lot of like equipping. Here are the tools. Here's here's what it is. Yeah. Here are the steps. Here's how you you know. Here's some strategies. Now let's brainstorm. Not let's ruminate out loud together. Let's brainstorm what has worked for you in your whole life. Whenever you found yourself ruminating, what have what have been some of the things that have worked to stop it? Or and or, what would you imagine could be a big enough gun? that you, know, you could pull out, break glass in case of emergency that would allow you to, to interrupt an episode of rumination, a bout of rumination. Let's compare notes, let's brainstorm together. That's fun, that's creative. And that's not sparking rumination. We're not co-ruminating. We're collaborating, we're, you know, we're, 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 we're just brainstorming together. Then we come back, we have an assignment. Start tracking, start noticing. When you're, what are your high risk rumination times? Let's compare notes on that. When are you likely to ruminate? When are you more protected? And then what did you practice? Did you, are, you, are you having trouble noticing when you're ruminating in real time? What would help with that? Ooh, maybe some mindful training. Ooh, maybe use an app that will just periodically just interrupt you mm. randomly and ask you, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing right now? Are you ruminating? You know, what's the setting? And so it, it's like this can be a really collaborative process where patients validate each other and strategize together and all, the whole time not co-ruminating, not sparking each other on the ruminative. Because we, we really want to avoid that. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. We don't want to let that spiral yeah. out of control. Yeah. But it doesn't have to. Yeah. In my experience, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, it takes a good clinician. Because it, it, it doesn't necessarily go toward health, like y'all might tell us. Like sometimes you have to provide some of that spark and direction. I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and 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 you know you have to be willing to be directive as a therapist mm -hmm. to say, wait, I'm just I'm going to stop right now. I hope you know I just, you know I, I, in fact I want to I want us to have a chance to talk about this after, but remember you know our goal was that we're not going to be ruminating out loud together, and this feels like it could go down that. That path, would it be okay with you if we just, you know, and so gently validate, but like redirect and just be like, no, we're pumping the brakes right now. Like, we're just not going to let it go. Because why? Because as a clinician in a group, I have a responsibility to everybody else present. I need to keep them safe, you know, and it's not going to be safe for them to hear about this person ruminating about their trauma that, you know, it's like, no, I'm going to protect them right. right now. But that's not hard. I mean, no. yeah. it's not rocket science, yeah. really. No, it, I mean, it's, the, especially how you describe it, it's, it's just fairly obvious. Exactly. Uh, and just brainstorming ways to interrupt that, I think it makes yeah. a ton of sense. Yeah, and, and I feel like most patients really enjoy that process. <laughs> and they, inviting them into the process of discovery. Yeah. Like, hey, this is fun, this is creative. Like, we're going to, and it's, it's, it's personal. It's like, right. we're going to fine tune it. We're going to discover what works for you. 
And what works for you is not going to be what works for me and vice versa. It's like, it's anti-ruminative for me to pour over a sheet of NBA box scores because I'm a basketball junkie. <laughs> yeah. My name is Steve. I'm a hoopaholic. And, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's but, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, my wife passes by me on my iPad, and she's like, it's just numbers. What the hell are you? I'm like, oh, honey, no, you have no idea. Yeah. This is like so yeah. exciting. Yeah. She's like, it's numbers. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I know. Isn't it? So anyway, it's, so it would not work for her. Right. But works for me. Interesting. Well, I like that. There's that, that moment of discovery that very, it's individualized, it's unique, it's, it feels special and it feels active, right? Like there's um, this component of being a part of your own answer, right? Like exactly. being a part of your own cure. Absolutely. And, yeah, and, and actually being able to just by um, becoming more aware of what you actually do like to engage in is, is part of the process of taking you out of the things that keep you away from them. So I like that. And then, so the next step then would, would be what? To, to practice that? To actually put that Absolutely. into action? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and just to treat it as a kind of, and I use, I, I have to be careful with addiction as a, as a metaphor sure. rather than a real thing. I mean, there are real behavioral addictions, yeah. obviously. Gambling addiction is by far the most mm -hmm. probably treacherous, but yeah. there are lots of other rivals. I think rumination is a kind of soft addiction. It's, sure. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very toxic habit, how about that? Mm -hmm. And it's seductive and alluring as a habit, which makes it kind of adjacent to addiction. And I think when patients are willing to be vulnerable with each other and share their journeys but cheerlead for each other, it's beautiful because mm -hmm. now they feel like they're useful. They're providing support. To, you know, and my favorite moments as a clinician have always been watching patients step up for other patients sure. and be part of the healing journey for their fellow travelers. And I'm just there soaking it in, maybe facilitating a little bit, sure. but honestly, just feeling privileged to be a part of that. Yeah. Like, you know, um, so much of the magic of a group when it, when it goes well is patients are able to discover that they have their own latent healing sure. talents that yeah. they can share with each other. Yeah, the less you talk, the better. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. as a clinician. And you get the magic of the million. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, and it, it, it's really humbling Absolutely. to watch patients have insight into each other's journey that I don't have. <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, this is the way it's supposed to. But, but see, that's why I love doing depression groups. Because when people are depressed, they don't want to be in a group. When people are depressed, <laughs> they want to just crawl into a cave, mm -hmm. crawl into a hole. And they feel like nobody gets me. Nobody, and I'm going to be a bummer, and I'm going to be a downer, and, you know, and people are just going to tell me stupid shit, like just cheer up or snap out of it. Yeah. Or, you know. But then they're in a group with other depressed patients, and they're like, oh, these people get it. Like, they get, I don't have to explain myself to them. And then it's like, well, but I'm afraid they're going to bring me down, and I'm going to bring them down. And then it's like, no, there's enough structure here yeah. to, like, there's, there's safety here. And then they tap into their own ability to like encourage each other. And, and, and I don't know, it's just, it's really magical when it yeah. works. So. Well, 
I love this. And I know <laughs> we could go on and on, and we could break out some Chalmers philosophy, oh, problems philosophy of consciousness. Of we can I'm get here for it. We, uh, <laughs> on the next episode, Pan, this, we'll show Pan, back up in the same psychism, Pan. idealism, viable solutions to the conundrum of the mind-body problem. Tune in next time. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Is every particle of the universe conscious? Yeah. Tune in next time. Oh, Lord. Hand psychism on the Scrabble board. Here we go. Yeah. You will steal the night. Yeah. So you will it. own the Scrabble board. Yeah. Between panpsychism and Zyprexa, you've got it covered. <laughs> well, on our way out last time, I nearly stole some of your thunder and would like to hear what you're doing in the background and what you would like uh, to promote here with us at this time, your podcast. Okay. Yeah. So super, super quick. Um, I've dipped my toes in the water with this brilliant Irish writer, his, his name is Hugh James. He's my like polar opposite in all the best ways. So I'm old, he's young, he's 27. Um, I'm a scientist, he's a poet. Um, I'm an American, he's Irish, he's cool, he's got a great accent. And we're doing this show together called Mental Health. What a, what a creative title. Mental yeah. Health wow. with Steve Alardi and Hugh James. And so we've, we've, we've got great chemistry somehow. We, it's weird because we're so such an odd couple, mm. but like so different that it works. Yeah. And we, we both like to laugh and we make each other laugh, which is really, so we're tackling like these crazy dark, like dark, sober, difficult, challenging topics with humor, with humility, with curiosity, and um, we have a lot of fun. So that's our show, it's called Mental Health with so you can find it, mental health. By the way, if you just type mental health into your podcast search thing, no, you're not going to find it because there are a million. Mental, yeah. If you type mental health and type Ilardi, I L A R D I, you're golden. You'll find yeah. it. Um, we have a YouTube channel that goes along with it. We have a web, oh, me website, mentalhealth.fm. And if you go to mentalhealth, that's our URL, mentalhealth.fm, you will find all the things. And we're growing it and we're excited about it. And, you know, it's a long shot, but, but, um, We've already got a little uh, faithful band of you know audience that seem to really value it. Um, I think it's my mom and like <laughs> like Q's mom and maybe like, like three former students or something. Right. But that's how it starts. Yeah, yeah. you know, you create the demographic. Yeah. At yeah. Least. Create the movement. Yeah, the mom. Yeah. Oh, the mom. And your reviews are always 100 percent with mine. Yeah. So we we have a Patreon. <laughs> and my mom goes. She's our first patron. Is awesome. <laughs> is there uh, on on top of that uh, work that you're doing there? Uh, can we dangle a carrot around the depression cure and update? The... Oh yeah, yeah. So so my publisher has contacted me. There is going to be a revised and expanded uh, I don't, second edition of the depression cure, which I'm real excited about because a lot's happened um, mm -hmm. in the last decade and lots of cool stuff I want to share. Scientific stuff as well as just clinical stuff as well. So yeah, awesome, beautiful. Thank you. So grateful for your work. Um, such an important topic uh, to be discussing overall, to share with the public and the viewers of Finding Peaks and your podcast and all through the depression care and everything that we're doing. Uh, just greatly appreciate your time oh, for coming. So I, from listen, man, this is an honor. It's a privilege. I, I feel so lucky to be so old. And so <laughs> I'm 58, okay? And to be able to hang out with young, talented folks like you guys that are like, keeping me in the game, keeping me excited and passionate and youthful. And um, God, my hope is that like, we'll be doing this, not this, 
but you know, still doing yeah. cool stuff in a decade and a decade beyond that. And um, I feel like the key to healthy aging, more than anything else, successful aging, is staying in the game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Staying in the game. Staying challenged physically. Staying challenged mentally. Feeling like you matter. Feeling like you're making a contribution, no matter. And there's no contribution that's too small. Like we talked about earlier today, like you could be flipping burgers, but if you're bringing some little bit of joy and light and, and, and compassion and humanity, it's like that can change the world, somebody's world. So, man, we need you in the game. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm loving the ride so much. I just, you know, just with gratitude. Um, it's, it's just all about the gratitude. Yeah. So. As we were doing this morning, can I get an amen? Amen, <laughs> amen brother. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, beautiful, awesome. Finding Peaks at PeaksRecovery.com. Kun's looking at me like I do the box thing. Cooper's yeah, like, going to put that in oh, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know he we got the, the talents. Yeah. Yeah. We got Chris Burns, president and founder on the TikTok. Follow us on uh, TikTok, the other social medias, uh, the Twitter, the Facebook, the Instagram, all of that. And Jason's going to be like, in the hosting chair at some point. And yeah. Jason yeah. is next, next in the week. hosting seat. So he will be tune in. He will be improved from his prior. <laughs> There's a lot of learning here. Today. Yeah, a lot of lot going on. Love you guys. Love yeah, all the viewers out there. Thanks for joining us again. Until next time.